the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Eight, eight. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. The following program has been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. King of my life. I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn crown brow, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget. first work. Almighty God, as we come now 
Would you make me clean before you? That your spirit, almighty God, could flow in this house tonight and accomplish all that you desire. Lord, we've separated ourselves from our daily activities, from our work, from our pleasure, to come into your presence and your house. Would you meet us now? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The first work is repentance. I share with you a story tonight that will open this up for our hearts so that we can understand this first work of repentance. And perhaps you're saying in your heart, but Ray, I've already repented. No, we haven't even yet begun to repent in this house. We're just getting ready to begin repenting. Tonight we have to come into this house with an attitude that says, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The church for 15 years has been building. Men and women have been maturing in the gospel. They have been listening to the teaching of the apostles as they recount for them story after story about Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. They have seen incredible miracles of healing. They've watched the power of God move with mighty, mighty force for healing, for repentance. They've watched as God has even taken the life of those who would play with him. And now the fist of persecution comes down on the church. Christians never do well in times of peace. They get fat and happy. They become self-consumed. They come up with all kinds of dreaming stories to entertain one another. You know, like I was taken up into heaven, and there I saw Elijah, and I saw Moses, and I saw, hmm? And you should listen to me because I'm the great one. And when I speak, you should listen to me because I have authority. That always happens in the body of Christ during peacetime. Gold dust falling from the ceiling. Diamonds are falling down in Ashton. My response is spread the sheets out, collect it, and pay your bills. Don't take any more offerings. I mean, it's foolishness. It's witchcraft. This is always a part of what happens during peacetime. But when the fist of persecution comes down on the church, it's cleansed. It's washed. The flakes are gone. And now you see who's going to stand and who's going to walk. And the church always prospers during persecution. The blood of the saints always brings forth more saints. Satan never understands this. He thinks he can destroy the church by bringing persecution. But instead, the church prospers. We're in desperate need of a great persecution. The fist of persecution came down. Saul is breathing fire and violence against God's people. Stephen is killed. 
And Saul begins to destroy the church. That word destroy in the Greek is the same word that is used for animals that ravage a human being. Paul is like a wild animal going around devouring Christian homes, trying to force Christians to blaspheme the name of God, scorning them publicly, whipping them, killing them, stoning them. Now, people are scattered. And wherever that seed is planted, the body of Christ grows up. And one of those table waiters, one of those deacons that always sets up the church, his name was Philip. He runs from the persecution like everyone else is running from the persecution. And he runs, of all places, to Samaria. Now, Samaria is important to understand. When the children of Israel were ripped up out of their land, they were replaced with Gentiles. And they intermarried with the people who remained in the land. So they were half-breed Jews. And they were called Samaritans. And they were utterly despised by the Jewish people. In fact, at this time, there was a saying that when you're going down the road and you see a Samaritan, if you push him and he falls in the mud, you've done a good thing. They were utterly despised. It's to these Gentiles that the Lord sends his first missionary. This is where... The Christian church is separated from Judaism and becomes now a worldwide movement that would eclipse Judaism. And God is now beginning to pour out his love and his affection for the Gentiles so as to call the Jewish people that they might be jealous of the Gentiles who come into the favor of God and who have found repentance. And these Samaritans... They repent. They hear the word of God. They accept Jesus as their Messiah. Now, word gets back to Jerusalem that evil spirits are coming out of many people with shrieks, that paralytics are being healed, that that cripples are rising up off the bed, that Parkinson's disease is being totally healed. The whole city is filled with great joy. Oh, would I like to see Washington, D.C. filled with great joy because of the poured out power of the Holy Spirit and people who call themselves Christian. Great joy. Now, there's a man by the name of Simon. He had practiced sorcery. He was a magi. Now, magi's you recognize, are in the story of Jesus. And the early Magis constantly sought knowledge about astronomy and about medicine and about science. They were not in the occult and they were not demonic. They were men who sought wisdom. And when Jesus came, the pearl of wisdom was what they sought. But through the years... 
this began to change, and the Magi began to be taken over by the demonic, occultic background, particularly out of Babylon and out of Egypt. And as this occult began to arise, they began to use their knowledge of astronomy to predict the future. And they called it astrology. They began to practice the magic arts from Egypt. Now, as they did this, Simon Magus found great power and great popularity. He was known as the Great One. The Greeks called the God of the Jews the Great One. In other words, they were saying his power comes from the God of the Jews because he was, no doubt, Jewish. He believed the message about Jesus, and he was baptized. In other words, he became a believer. Now, something of great interest begins to happen in Jerusalem where everybody is now underground. They all meet together and they decide that Peter and John should go as missionaries to help Philip in Samaria. Now that sounds okay, but it's strange. Let me tell you what's strange about it. Everyone says that Peter is the Pope. Peter is the man in authority. If Peter had been the man in authority, he would have sent his emissaries. But instead, he was sent. There was no packing order in the New Testament church. The apostles gained their authority because they served. The apostles had authority because the Holy Spirit could use them to do signs and wonders. But it's also clear that the Holy Spirit did not do signs and wonders just through the apostles. Also did signs and wonders through the table waiter. Now, we've said this many times, but I have to keep coming back to it. In the New Testament church, there is no pecking order. There are only various gifts. And these gifts are functions, not positions. There is no such thing as the position of an apostle. There is the function of an apostle. That's vital for you to understand as we delve deeper into the New Testament church. The whole issue of pastors and laymen, meaning the uneducated, is totally non-biblical. In the scripture... Layman means any person of God who has received the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And one of the functions of the layman is to pastor. I am first a layman. I function as a layman by fulfilling the role of a pastor. Others function as evangelists. Others function as apostles. Others function as keepers of the finances. In other words, there are different functions, but there's just one spirit. There are different gifts, but there's just one spirit. 
And so let's not shine the light back into the scriptures and interpret it through our own wicked Western understandings. Let's understand what the scripture is saying for itself. It's saying now that the church met together. And it was the decision of the church to send Peter and John. Jesus was the one who started this, remember? He said, go two by two. And so now they're being sent two by two. Watch what happens now. Verse 14, Acts, the eighth chapter, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be real clear about this. There has been a great deal of confusion over this passage of Scripture. They have already received the gift of salvation. Therefore, they have already received the first deposit of the Holy Ghost. You cannot enter into salvation and not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It is very clear here that there is a second gifting of the Holy Spirit that is unto signs and wonders. There is a second gifting of the Spirit that comes sometimes by the laying on of hands and sometimes by the arbitrary decision of the Spirit, as happened at Pentecost. Who laid hands on them at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit did, with tongues of fire. When Peter was called to the home of the Gentile military man, as he's speaking, Cornelius and his family and his friends received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was not the gift unto salvation. That was the gift of signs and wonders. So let's be clear. There is a gifting of the Holy Spirit, and this is the gifting that the National Prayer Chapel is crying out for. And this is the gifting we will not be satisfied until we have received it. Because it is this gifting that provides the work of evangelism. It is this gifting, not the strategies of the human flesh. It is the gifting of the Holy Spirit that gives our utterance the sharp cutting edge that brings conviction. Without this Holy Spirit, you're going to spend your whole life trying to dig one sinner out of the mud. And as soon as you get him out and get him washed up, he'll run back and jump back in the mud. It says a pig always returns to its wallow. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us. And then there's that second empowering that delivers immense authority and dunamis or dynamite power to break the bondages of sin. All of us here have received, I pray, the first deposit of the Holy Spirit unto salvation. Now we're waiting and praying and doing the work of God as we prepare for the poured out power of the Holy Spirit. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come 
upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I suspect that the laying on of hands here had more to do with Peter and John than the need of the Holy Spirit for them to lay hands on. And I suspect what this was about was a breaking in Peter and John of the prejudice against the Samaritans. You did not even want to touch a Samaritan. They were unclean, half-breeds. And so now Peter and John come and lay their hands on them and feel the rush of God's power as he says, these Gentiles are mine. These Gentiles are mine. Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offered them money for the power to do signs and wonders. He already had a bag full of tricks, and he said, here's my chance to buy an even more powerful trick. Peter responds, verse 20, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. Wait a minute, what's he saying? You have no part. That word part in the Greek is reserved to speak about birthright privileges. So he is saying to this man, you have no birthright to this power. You have no heritage that says you should receive this as an inheritance. And then he says, or share in this ministry. That word share is always used in the scripture to speak about a military battle where you have gone out, the enemy has been ravaged, and all of the booty has been brought back. And then by casting lots, each soldier gets his share. And Peter is saying, you didn't go to battle. You have not done the battle, so none of the booty belongs to you. Here now, he's saying, you don't get any inheritance in this deal. And you don't get any booty in this deal because you haven't gone to battle. Now, what I want you to do is read the context with me once again of this passage. What is he speaking about? And you'll discover he is not speaking to this man about having no inheritance as a Christian. He is not speaking here about this man being a Gentile, unbelieving, lost man. He is saying you have not done the necessary battle to receive the booty of the gifting of the Holy Ghost. You see, there is... Only the gift of Jesus to be received for salvation. But the gifting of the Holy Spirit is a whole nother matter. There is a battle that has to be fought to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To be able to inherit the gifting of the Spirit, there are some things you have to take care of without which you will walk around with the knowledge and the principles of being a Christian, but you will have absolutely no power, no authority. Men will listen to you, 
and cast aside what you say and there will be no tears, no repentance, no confession. Because you have no part in this. You have no booty in this. You have no inheritance in this. This is not something you can enter into. It's not something you can share because you haven't done the work. So now what's the work? Verse 22, repent of this wickedness. And the wickedness is that his heart is not right before God. How many Christians have hearts that are not right before God? Who know the gospel of Jesus? Hmm? I know the gospel of Jesus, but my heart's not right before God. There's sin in my life. Peter says, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Now, wait a minute. He does not say to this man, go home and read the scriptures. Oh, Jesus. He doesn't say to this man, go home and pray. And perhaps God will give to you the gift of repentance. He says, repent. And if you refuse to repent, you have no share in the Holy Spirit. You have no inheritance of the Holy Ghost. You can't be a part of the work of God. If you want to be a part of the work of God, repent, he says. This is a, this is a tough, straight word to our hearts that says, repent. Don't let this condition continue to exist in your heart between you and God. Get it dealt with. Now, let me share the scary part of this. This is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who has earned the right and fought the battle and has become an apostle and is filled with the Holy Ghost. Listen to what he says. Repent of this wickedness. Then pray. After you've repented, then pray. Perhaps he will forgive you. Now, please hear me. God is under no obligation to forgive you just because you say, I'm sorry. We've gotten the wrong conception. We have thought at any time we desire, we could simply come to God and we could say, I'm sorry, I'll stop doing that. Now send me your presence and your power. We thought it was a deal we could lay out. It's not. It says, perhaps, perhaps. It's saying, you have the right to hope that God will forgive you. You do not have the assurance that God will forgive you. Now, you understand why this is so vital to understand. You cannot come into the presence of God demanding that he forgive you and give to you the gifting of the Holy Ghost. Because he's under no obligation to do that. Rather, you must come into the presence of God, turn aside from all wickedness for no other purpose than it's the right thing to do. I mean, what do you think of a child who all day long is just as as nice as he can be, wonderfully friendly, wonderfully obedient. And then as you come in to give this child a hug and a kiss goodnight and to pray with this child, the child says, now, Mama, may I have my piece of candy? 
I've been good all day. What? You've been good for a piece of candy? Not because it's the right thing to do. You did it because you wanted something. Not because you loved me. You see, we can't come into the presence of God and say, Now, look, I've been good all day, Jesus. And if you don't give me my candy tomorrow, I'm going to be bad. You can't treat God that way. You can't come into the presence of God and demand your rights. You have no rights except to go to hell. The only right you have is to go to hell. You've sinned against Almighty God. You've turned your back on Him. Every day you've acted in ways that have brought dishonor to His name. You have no rights. You've been sold in sin to go to hell. If God chooses to save you, it is only His grace and His mercy. It is not obligation. God has no obligation to save you. You have no deal with God. It is only if he chooses in his mercy to forgive you. So he says, repent of this wickedness. Repent of this wickedness. Not because you're going to get the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent of this wickedness because if you don't, you're going to go to hell for sure. Go as a supplicant, humble before God, and lay your heart out before the Father and let him judge whether you're safe or not to spend eternity with the Lord God of heaven. I have said before the Lord, Lord God, look at my heart. Lord, look carefully at my heart. And if you know in your great wisdom that I will defile heaven in any manner, don't bring me into that place. I can't imagine anything worse than being taken to heaven and then defiling that place once more like the devil. Now, I know in my heart that's exactly what I do. Take me to heaven, and I'm going to say, how do I get get some power here? How do I become somebody here? Somebody's got a bigger house than me. Somebody's got more favor of God than I've got. How do I get it? How do I get God to pay attention to me? You know, some of you, it's interesting when I talk with some of you. You're interested in talking with me as long as I'm talking about you. But the moment the topic switches to something other than you, you get bored. Well, I have to go, Pastor Ray. How safe do you think you are to go to heaven? Totally consumed with your own agenda. Totally consumed with your own feelings. Totally consumed with your own desires. You think you're safe to go to heaven? Not a chance. If you get to heaven, you know how you're going to get there? It's called grace. Because you didn't deserve it. And I don't deserve it either. I'm never going to be able to stand up in heaven and lift my hands up and say, hey, everybody, listen up now. I did a good job down there on earth. I deserve to be here. Not going to happen. 
I'm not going to be in heaven because I deserve to be there. If I get to heaven and I pray I get there, it's going to be by grace and grace alone. So when I come to the Lord and I lay before him as I have today and I do every day, and I ask him to deal with the sin and the corruption and the bitterness of my heart, I say, oh God, is there a chance you'll forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And I stay on my face until he tells me whether or not he's forgiven me. Sometimes it's been 30, 60, 90, a a year. For some sin in my heart, it's been several years of constantly struggling, saying, oh God, look at this sin in my heart. And then I think I've gained the victory. Up it pops again. I go back in the prayer closet and I say, oh God, I thought we had this settled. And here I am. Oh God, that's why you didn't just quickly come and say, yes, Ray, I forgive you. No, he wants to do a deep work on our hearts. He wants the very root of that thing pulled out. God is not in this for cheap grace. God is not in this to smooth over and put a clean robe of righteousness around a filthy heart? You think God's going to cover up your filth with a perfect robe of righteousness? This lie that's so popular that says, oh, God looks down and he sees Jesus. He doesn't see you. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm the judge. And I'm the one who's going to decide whether you go in or not. And I'm not looking at myself. I'm looking at you. I'm taking notes on you. The scripture describes it as a magnifying glass, a microscope zeroed in on your heart, and he's examining you. And as you confess your sin, he's saying, perhaps, perhaps I'll forgive. Let's see. Is this going to be a continual rebellion in your heart? We're going to be saved or lost not on one day's action. We're going to be saved or lost not on on one second of indiscretion or one second of obedience. We're going to be saved or lost based on the direction of our life. As we move under the anointing of the Holy Spirit... He's not going to look at one action. He's going to look at this history of my life. How have I walked this thing out? Am I safe to take into the heavenly realm? By his grace, you remember, he came upon Saul and changed him into a new man. And that new man went back to the pig pen. Solomon had a heart. Oh, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to be like my father David. Oh, by the way, Pharaoh, could I have your wife? Or your daughter as my wife? Could we form an alliance here? I need some political protection. I want to make sure Egypt doesn't come and attack me. You understand, this was not just an empty threat. After Solomon's death, the the Egyptian Pharaoh came and ravished the temple of God. 
Fifty years after the temple was built, it was ravaged by the Egyptians. So Solomon says, hey, I know how to take care of that. Political alliance, I'll marry his favorite daughter. Then he sent Egypt for all of the horses. 30,000 horses. Built great stall. Everything that Moses had commanded the kings of Israel not to do, Solomon did. Is it any wonder that at the end of his life, his heart was seduced to go worship Moloch and offer his children as burnt offerings? I don't expect to see Solomon in heaven. If I do, I'm going to weep before God and say, oh, what grace. Oh, what grace. What grace. The command is to repent. To repent means to turn aside from that course of action and to walk that way no longer. Not to get a piece of candy, but because it's the right thing to do. Because we are ordered by God to do it. And as we walk in that repentance, as we surrender to the Lord God of heaven, as we walk under that yoke that Jesus said was easy and light, as we walk under that yoke, as we walk with Jesus Christ, He trains us in holiness. He disciplines us in holiness. We can't just say, hey, I'm thirsty. I'm out of here for a while. No, you're yoked. Can't get out of the yoke that quick. Takes a long time to get yoked up with Jesus, and it takes a long time to get unyoked. We've said it in a number of different ways. The gate of heaven swings open slowly. Praise God, the gate of heaven swings Closed slowly. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I think I'm going to head back to the barn for a feast. No, you can't. You're yoked in. You're not pulling the heavy weight. Jesus is pulling the heavy weight, but you're yoked in. You don't just bail out when you don't feel good. You don't just throw off being a Christian and say, today I'm not going to be a Christian. Today I'm going to be mine. When you do that, you feel what's called the goad. You know what the goad is? The goad is a long stick with a sharp iron point on the end. And when the ox start going the wrong way or they start dallying, the driver jabs them with the steel point. Remember the Lord said to Saul, it's hard to fight against the goads, isn't it? (laughs) Hard to fight against the goads. Yes, they're sharp. And they poke. And they draw blood. Now watch. He is saying this, and now he reveals the heart of it in verse 23. With prophetic insight, Peter says, For I see that you are full of gall. Gall is created in the liver. It's an orange substance, liquid It is the most bitter thing known to man. It is used by the body. Gall. Bitterness. He is saying, I see that you are full of bitterness. Bitterness only comes from one place. Not getting my own way. 
When I can't have my own way, I get angry and I get bitter. Bitterness is a byproduct of selfishness. I want my way. If I can't have my way, bile will rise in my throat. And out of the bile that rises in my throat, I'm going to speak curses against you. He's saying, I have seen your heart, and it is full of bile. It is full of gall. It's full of bitterness. Now, what shall I do when my sweetheart isn't so sweet? What shall I do when she has one of those days? Nothing seems to go right for her. And obviously, it's my fault. What do I do? Well, the gall of bitterness can rise up in my heart, and I can begin to spread that around. I can begin to feel like a victim. I can begin to feel like, God, why'd you give me this woman? Why do I have this woman in my life? I can begin to feel like, you know, you could have given me a sweet wife. Somebody who's going to do what I want. Okay, I'll just put up with her. How many marriages I know that are just husband and wife putting up with each other. Roommates. Associates. Partners in crime. No love. No passion. Just the gall of bitterness. Or when my sweetheart has one of those days and she's not playing her best game. Did you know she has days like that? I can fall on my face in my prayer room like Moses and intercede for her and cry aloud for her. You see, I have two options. I can either curse her or I can bless her. If I curse her, she'll be cursed. If I bless her, she'll be blessed. And whatever curse I speak upon her, I speak upon my own life because we are one flesh. And any blessing I speak upon her, I speak upon myself because we're one flesh. So when she won't do it my way, do I say it's the highway? If you're not going to do it my way, I'm just going to leave. I'm out of here. I'll see you tonight. Most of my life, I've been a lever. Things get tough, I'll say my piece and I'm out of there. Not with very nice words either. I can't do that anymore. I can't walk that way anymore. Instead, I've got to grab my scriptures and keep my mouth shut and get into the prayer closet and begin to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord God, The enemy is coming against me and my marriage. And if you don't come and stand between us, we're going to say things we don't want to say. And we're going to act in ways we don't want to act. Lord, would you come and stand between us? Jan and I have made a vow that the devil can't get between us by the name of Jesus. We've made a vow that when one of us is having a bad day, the other one's going to be praying and covering We've made a vow that our heart will be lifted up to Jesus and not up to bitterness. 
You have to decide that before the fight comes. You can't wait until the passion of battle is between you. You have to see the war coming and get out of it and get to the prayer closet now. And gentlemen, you've also got to take another position. My sweetheart is right. I'm not going to argue with her. I'm going to pray for her. Because if we use our position as heads of household to crush, we destroy. So I can't come down on Jan and say, and expect her the next moment to put her arms around me and say, you're so sweet. I love you. No, no, that's not how harmony comes in the house. Harmony comes in the house when one of us or both of us is willing to get in the prayer closet and cry aloud to the Lord until that gall of bitterness has been washed out with the sweetness of the Lord's Spirit until we have the assurance of His forgiveness. Now you notice there is a second sin that is spoken of. I see that you are first full of bitterness or full of gall. And secondly, I see that you are captive to sin. Captive to sin. In other words, you're imprisoned. Tonight, some of you are imprisoned in your sin. He's saying, repent of that sin. He's not saying, go read your scriptures. He's not saying, go pray. He's saying, repent of that sin. Name it. Be specific. Lay it out. Look at it in cold blood. Say, do I love you, sin, or do I hate you? Now you're ready to pray. Now you're ready for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and minister to your heart. I shared quickly in closing one passage of Scripture in Romans, the 8th chapter, the 13th verse. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. That is spoken to people who are Christians. If you call yourself a Christian, you've received the first deposit of the Holy Ghost, and you walk according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Paul is saying, if you will take concrete and specific action to deal with those things that rise up in your heart as sin, that separate you from Jesus, that separate you from your husband or from your wife, that separate you from your mom or dad, that separate you from... Whoever it is, if you will deal with that specific sin, you will bring it before the Lord. You will, by the power of the Spirit, break that thing. You'll remove the bondage. Then you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Oh, now, wait a minute. Remember, Peter said you will have no inheritance No inheritance in the spirit. No part of the booty of the battle because you have not done the battle of repentance yet. He's saying, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because 
those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That means you now have the right to receive from God the inheritance of sonship. Romans 8.15 Romans 8.15 For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. In other words, there is a spirit upon us of fear when we're walking in sin and we begin to see the sin for what it is. We then are called to a spirit of fear before God because perhaps he'll forgive us, but perhaps he won't. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Daddy, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, my question to you tonight is, does your spirit testify that you are a son or daughter of the Lord God of heaven? Or does your spirit testify that you're walking in darkness before God and that you are sinning against him and that you are captive in the bile of gall or bitterness, that you're captive in the bondage of sin? This is an issue you have to get settled before God so that you hear not sentimentally, but you hear in reality that you are born again and that you have overcome the devil, the world and the flesh and that you now have the right to the inheritance of the gift of the Holy Spirit for signs and wonders. Until you have that gifting, you will not be of value to the kingdom of God. And your salvation will always be up for grabs, depending on how you feel that day. And the Lord is calling for a national prayer chapel where no longer is our salvation up for grabs. It is settled. We have settled in our heart that we will obey the Lord God of heaven. We will obey. There is nothing else in our spirit, but we will obey. We will do the work of repentance. We will fight the battle with the flesh for repentance. We will pray and we will wait upon God with hope that he will both forgive us our sins and grant us the inheritance that we have been promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies, verse 16, with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. You are not going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if you have not entered into the war with your sin and suffered the breaking of the power of sin in your life. If you come with arrogance before God and you confess some little sin and you say, thank you, now I'm forgiven. Now, God, give me my piece of candy. You will never receive the anointing power of the Holy Ghost. You're going to have to do the work of the battle with sin. You're going to have to look at your misdeeds and get them straightened out by the power of the Spirit You're going to have to cry aloud to God until you have the assurance in your heart that you now have a right to the Holy Spirit. And now we begin to pray differently. 
By faith, we take hold of the promise of the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And now by faith, with cries of victory, we wait for the pouring out of the power of the Holy Ghost. This is where this whole church has to come to, walking in victory and in power like the 120 before the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came after the church assembled and spent time in victorious prayer with all sin put away, washed and clean before God. They had done the work. There was no bile of bitterness in them. There was no self-centeredness in them. There was no anger and malice in their heart. They were one in Christ and they were crying aloud, give us now the inheritance that you have promised us. And it came like fire and wind. And the church grew to 15,000 overnight. By the power of the Spirit, each of us have to be pulled through this mess. God's going to come to a church. He's going to come to his body. And he wants a body prepared and ready to receive the poured out power of the Holy Spirit And so he's calling you tonight. Deal with your sin. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of